welcome to another episode of the WBT, the Rock Bearing Trees podcast. Today, a special treat. Uh, it's going to be myself, Adrian Bonnenberger, uh, one of the co-editors, and Andrea Williams, another one of the co-editors, although I think most WBTers would acknowledge, functionally speaking, the editor-in-chief of the publication. How are you doing, Andrea? I'm good. How are you this morning? Uh, not too bad, you know, as, relatively speaking. In the last uh, days of the Republic. Andrea, you suggested a really cool story by uh, a one of the great 20th century slash 21st century writers. Please introduce it. All right. So the story I chose uh, when asked by Adrian to choose one is the title story from Alice Munro's The Progress of Love, which was published in 1986. There was something kind of soothing to me about choosing a, a Canadian writer at this political moment. But uh, interestingly, I, I feel that this story bumps up against all kinds of things that are incredibly relevant here in 2020. So mm -hmm. The Progress of Love starts off her, her, this collection, and it is, it operates on so many levels, but on the most basic level, it is a family story. It is a grown woman um, who grew up in a small farming town in Canada, in Ontario, and she is looking back at her parents' marriage. And there are sort of two central large stories that have become sort of quietly legendary in her parents' marriage. Uh, the first is a story that her mother had told her, that when her mother was a child, she one day woke up and couldn't find, uh, couldn't find her own mother in the house. Mm. And the kind of clue that Alice Monroe gives is that a silent house is terrifying to her. So there's something about waking up to a silent house that seems particularly frightening for, for the narrator's mother. So the narrator's mother hunts all around to try and find her mom and ends up finding her in the family barn and she is hanging a noose from one of the rafters and one of the beams and um, the narrator's mother is just sort of frozen there uh, and is told by her own mother, go get your father. So this is the, this is the story that has kind of framed uh, for the narrator the story of her own mother's childhood that she once uh, had to see her own mother preparing to do something like this. The narrator's mother is Marietta and she runs into town desperate to find her father to stop what she fears might happen. She has only a younger sister, Beryl, in the house and Beryl is too young to, to be of any help whatsoever. Mm. Um, she can't find her father. But eventually when she returns to her home, she finds that luckily a neighbor woman who saw her running away from the house in her nightgown, terrified, went to investigate and actually talked her mother out of killing herself. This is the story that the way the narrator has always framed the story. Mm -hmm. That is the first part of the story. The second, the second sort of legend of the family is that the same mother, Marietta, once burned her inheritance and sort of the mystery of why. And, mm. and, uh, she burned her inheritance in a, in a very poor household um, with her husband looking on. And what was his role? How did he feel about this? He's sort of this laconic figure in the story. The story opens with the narrator um, getting a call from her father, the quiet father, telling her that the mother, Marietta, has just died. So that sort of sets the, the stage for the story and for this investigation into these other sort of legends of the family. So how did you first encounter this story? Did you find this book while browsing a bookstore or was this something that was recommended to you? Did you read it for a class? 
I read it while in the um, MFA program at the University of Minnesota and Alice Monroe was one of sort of the key authors that we did read a lot of, I feel like, uh, mm. in, in the MFA days, you know, along with like Laurie Moore and, you know, uh, Raymond Carver. Um, right, and right. so I remembered reading this, I was probably 21 or 22. And it's interesting because I feel like I have focused on different parts of the story, reading it now, almost 20 years later. I think when I was younger, strangely, I focused on the changes that the narrator was describing happening to her town. The parents' farm ends up being sold and turned into a commune, which uh, the narrator sort of receives this, this information with kind of disgust and later goes back to visit it. Right. Uh, and, uh, and that was kind of funny to me because I had gone to Berkeley and then moved to Minnesota. So it was kind of reverse <laughs> uh, Ontario, Berkeley sort of thing. And this time around, I really focused on the both the mother and this, this kernel of hatred that she apparently carries from her father, that she would burn this inheritance that she was given. And then this idea of the father looking on really struck with me this time. Mm. I don't know if in part it's because in the interim 20 years, I've read um, Dostoevsky's The Idiot. And I felt this time reading the story that there were so many echoes of, of themes from that story in the progress of love. And so I think that gave me a different uh, sort of lens for reading it. But um, I would love to hear your impressions because you had not read the story before and so this was your first time reading it. Great summary. It is a story about relationships and identity, as far as I can tell. It rem and the voice reminded me very much of Raymond Carver and maybe Dennis Johnson's uh, Jesus Son to a certain mm -hmm. extent. And, and interestingly, because Jesus' son, apparently, uh, as uh, I, I can't remember if it was Mike Carson or David James, I think it must have been Mike on an earlier uh, episode of the WBT, mentioned that Jesus' son, what, according to Dennis Johnson, was lifted almost, not verbatim, but, but you know, uh, stylistically, was incredibly heavily influenced by Isaac Babel's Red Cavalry. Okay, um, yeah. Which we, which we covered recently. And, and so there is this, the, the, the things that I was thinking about um, when reading it were, I had Raymond Carver in the background, you know, uh, you know will, will you please be quiet, please? And another short fiction of that, uh, uh, in that tenor and, and, and Jesus' son. But also, uh, I, I was also thinking about, you know, Red Cavalry and the idea of stories generating how stories generate meaning and how, how meaning shifts depending on what part of the story the speaker wants to emphasize. It was such a, it's such a fascinating story and, and there's so many angles to it. The, the, thing, the first thing that I noticed, I'll say too, is that although the story begins with, as you said, the narrator learning from her father that her mother has died, the, the male figures in the story are all sort of secondary or even tertiary characters. They're like plot devices, you know, like although they're there, they, they're very, they just like they're illuminations. Mm -hmm. um, they are not central characters. Like the, the hatred of the mother, Marietta, uh, for her father is more of a central character, like that emotion than her father, who, who you don't actually know about. You hear different accounts of, of what he does. Uh, and so what he is and what he does ends up being irrelevant on a certain level. 
Right. And it's never, it's never explained. We never know why Marietta carries such an intense hatred for him. I don't know, you know, that's an interesting authorial decision. I don't know if we need it explained or if we even care, like you said, but yeah, we never know exactly why she hates him so much and why her sister who turned out very differently doesn't. Yeah. Um, do you want to talk a little bit about, cause there's like this great moment when the sister arrives on the scene and the first time they meet her. And that's when um, the narrator first gets an inkling that the story may not have occurred exactly how she had go always been told it. Yeah, oh, what ahead. did you need to do it? <laughs> <laughs> uh, okay. Yeah. I'll, so I'll take a stab at it and you can correct me where I am, uh, where Never. I sort of misremembered something. So what happens is, as you said, uh, the narrator, whose name is actually worth mentioning, we, 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 because I think the name is key. Uh, her name, the, the narrator's name is Euphemia. And she says that she goes by the nickname Fame. But the only word that Euphemia sort of reminds me of, both in terms of its spelling and in terms of its sound, is euphemism. And so the name of the mm -hmm. main character is... Uh, is a word that means, you know, sort of a nice way of saying a bad thing, essentially. Yeah. <laughs> you know? Did it remind you of Iphigenia at all? That was one thing it brought up for me. You'll have to remind me. Is that That's a father-daughter uh, sort of sacrifice story. Oh. Um, but I, you know what, I only remember it vaguely, not enough to have, um, but I, I believe that he, that he sacrifices her uh, to appease the gods. He's a leader. Um, anyway. Is that Agamemnon? So Agamemnon, that's the only sacrifice that I'm aware of. If it, well, I'm, I'm gonna have to brush up on my Greek myths. It might be, yeah. Like a, okay, um, I had not thought of that. I, I was only thinking of euphemia slash euphemism, but there's, that's, that sounds like another very, an, another valid way to, to read the main character. Well, um, I like euphemism. I didn't think about that at all. This is why we podcast. We podcast <laughs> to, to, to unify. Um, at least in, in time and space, these different readings. But so I, I'm going to stick with euphemism only because it is convenient for what I was going to mention with the, uh, the arrival of Beryl, her aunt, um, the, the, the narrator's sister. The aunt comes in and she's grown into a, a city woman, a sophisticated urbanite from California who has a, a well-to-do gentleman friend who is obviously has, you know, he has means, but he doesn't seem to have, he, he, he is himself not sophisticated. Like the sophistication mm. is obviously the sophistication of means rather than of taste. And there's this very bitter underlying hostility between Beryl and Marietta, between her mother and her aunt, uh, Euphemia's mother and aunt. And so she comes in and she's dressed very nicely and she takes care of her appearance. Her mother uh, is also attractive and has a, a classy bearing, but doesn't have the same clothes or the same access to means. Uh, and they go out to this lunch uh, after church. And this is where we learn that Beryl has a completely different understanding of what happened um, between their mother, Euphemia's grandmother, and their father. That's, that's my memory of, of sort of how it happened. Right. And, uh, and Beryl had gone to live with the father in California, right? And Oh, uh, right, of course. So she had essentially been raised by the father and hearing, 
I don't, I don't think this was something they talked about, but she had absorbed his versions of events over many years. And then fame had stayed, had stayed behind. She had chosen to live on her own. So that seems important. But yeah, I love this figure of Beryl from the city, you know, like she comes in and, uh, you know, they're working so hard to like repaper the, the guest room for her. But then of course, Mr. Florence ends up, her, her boyfriend ends up sleeping in there um, when he's not sitting in his car smoking or like stealing nips out of the glove box to right. <laughs> keep his spirits up. I like <laughs> I said that. And then Aunt Beryl arrives and they see through her eyes, I think, how shabby, you know, that the house looks to them. She's mystified by the ice uh, that they keep in the barn covered with sawdust. And she's like, mm-hmm. where do you get ice that big and off of the lake? And yeah, and so she comes in and she has a different take. She takes them out to dinner or yeah, after church, I guess, lunch. And it brings up this story of the mother's near suicide over lunch with the men sitting there kind of, you know, dumbfounded. Because to her, it's something of a joke story. She believes that the mother was pranking, essentially, that she was kind of jealous because- yeah. Father was this big, strong, good-looking man, as Beryl describes him, which seems to excuse him from any behavior. And then she believes that the mom wanted him to come see her setting up this this scene, but not would never have gone through with it. And even though Beryl at the time must have been only three or something, she claims that she remembers that the that the rope was not secured; it was just mm-hmm. draped over the beam. So she mm-hmm. says, "You know, how could?" She, so obviously, she was joking. Well, Beryl is so young; she's almost pre-verbal in the, the in the story in this time frame when when this event occurred so it's hard to know how much weight to put on whatever she observed although children can observe you know all kinds of things um but normally memories are concurrent with development of language so there's so there's that part of it and then Beryl also has well this is it's also on that same visit that Beryl learns what happened to um, Marietta's inheritance and what she did right. with it, which horrifies her. So, because Beryl appreciates money and apparently sort of appreciates sort of sugar daddies, right? Because she's got right, right, Mr. Florence right. there with his car. So, I don't but, know. Well, and there's this other part of it, though, because you're right, the, the, the burning of the inheritance, it, uh, we should mention very quickly that, you know, the reason it's it's a little bit difficult to to dig into the story is that the story's composition is incredibly complex and it itself jumps around a lot. So not only is it jumping around a lot in terms of time, uh, you're getting this this sort of like temporal displacement as you hear the story unfold at different moments in time. Even within the first section, there are tense changes. And then you also, in addition to that, have uh, different versions of the story unfolding at different times. So it's incredibly complex and if there is a kind of linear path in the story, it seems to be one that is emotional rather than logical. Mm-hmm. Um, and the conclusion of the story is you, what you are left with is the, the somewhat horrifying recognition on the part of the protagonist of Euphemia or fame that she has perpetuated this version of events that is exculpatory toward her mother and and vindicates her father, not her mother's father, who is a villain and unknowable, um, according right. to her, ultimately unknowable, but her actual father, because her mother didn't consult with her father in burning the inheritance, but in her memory, she ha- they, they, they had consulted and they had done it jointly. Um, because of course, right. the burning of the inheritance affects her as well. Like one of the other things that happens very early in the story is she talks about how they couldn't afford to send her to high school. And that, ha- that too 
has had a dramatic effect on how she um, how she was raped um, and and sort of the course of her life. Um, and her mother sort of like had this weird like weirdly viewed her as someone who would just kind of like get a job early on and like would make money for the household and all of like the, the so that the hatred that her mother felt for her father is simultaneously of primary importance not just to everybody in the family her you know her father her mother her it's also uh, in question there's there's no way to establish whether you know logically or factually what what its source was so instead you just kind of have to take take it on faith on a certain level eventually she just ends up saying i i like to picture my father there like i think he was there he must have known about it although i understand that he he learned about that for the first time in that car with me but i still her version of of things is that actually her father was there and what that means on a certain level this is the last thing i'll say the last connection i'll, I'll attempt to make is that it's also possible that this is true of her mother, that her mother had some, essentially, she had made a choice to remember her father a certain way, but just in a different way, in, in, in a negative way. Or Beryl had made a choice to remember her father in a certain way. And whether it's true or false ends up not mattering as much as what's convenient for an individual, which is really tough. That's like, that's a really, really tough and wild idea. To, uh, to describe the story. Yeah, that's an excellent reading of it. And, uh, and, and I sometimes um, minimize the loss, what the loss of that money meant for anyone other than the mother. This is enough, kind of getting a little more basic here, but just that uh, Beryl remarks, you know, that would be $30,000 today that your mom burned. And you're right that uh, fame never got to go to school, even though she was very bright, even though her right. mom had uh, been a school teacher herself. And so right, denying her right. daughter a possibility that she had. Um, I think that choice of memory is so, um, is so important to this story. And you're right, it really, it doesn't, it's funny, like you said, the men are peripheral to the story. But what the mother did ref in burning the money, it reflects so much on the father whether he was present or not if he wasn't if he was just the rube if he didn't know if the money was never uh, a choice that he got to make um then he's just sort of another sort of sidelined man if he was standing there kind of giving this sort of tacit approval then he is sort of prince mushkin you know he is or you know he's, yeah. he's saying i understand and it can do you mind if i read just a little short bit because i love yeah yeah, yeah. It, it goes into what you were saying so Here's her realization that her father may not have known, Fame's realization that her father may not have known or been privy to the burning of the money. So she says, my father did not stand in the kitchen watching my mother feed the money into the flame. It wouldn't appear so. He did not know about it. It seems fairly clear, if I remember everything, that he did not know about it until that Sunday afternoon in Mr. Florence's Chrysler, when my mother told them all together. Why then can I see the scene so clearly, just as I described it to Bob Marks, and to others, he was not the first. I see my father standing by the table in the middle of the room, the table with the drawer in it for knives and forks and the scrubbed oil cloth on top, and there is the box of money on the table. My mother is carefully dropping the bills into the fire. She holds the stove lid by the blackened lifter in one hand, and my father standing by seems not just to be permitting her to do this, but to be protecting her. Mm. A solemn scene, but not crazy. 
people doing something that seems to them natural and necessary. At least one of them is doing what seems natural and necessary, and the other believes that the important thing is for that person to be free, to go ahead. They understand that other people might not think so. They do not care. Amazing. Yeah. There are layers to the story that are just fantastic. Yeah, it's, it's so well put together. It's so, it's so effectively layered that you move from scene to scene like that and in each one of the scenes is powerful, but, but then, yeah, she's making this choice, right? Like how, how, wild, and, and you mentioned that the story is sort of relevant for today. And I think one of the ways in which it's relevant, I'd like to hear you say more uh, about that a little bit. Um, it, one of the ways that it, it seems relevant to me, at least in, in terms of, you know, sort of deliberate storytelling is, you know, in the, the, the clash we see between people on the far left and the far right to characterize an event as indicative of the far left or indicative of the far right, uh, almost independent of the facts. They decide beforehand, before they learn who shot whom or who planned to shoot whom, who is going to be at fault. And what's most important to them is, is how they feel about a thing. What's most important to them is the truth that they believe in on a certain level that seems to be tied into identity. Yeah, <laughs> no, it's true. And it's, it's such a hard thing because in, in large part, it's human nature. We have really strong loyalties. I mean, there are times when I believed that uh, regionalism is almost more important to how a person turns out, like where you grew up, what your mm. regional influences were than almost any other. I mean, I can convince myself back and forth of this all the time, but there are, are ways that we are so formed to be predisposed to ideas and, and that we adhere to our loyalties and that we have, just like the narrator, a sort of revulsion for the thing that we see like encroaching on these loyalties, that it becomes very visceral and very hard to combat, even for people who are very rational and reasonable. I mean, she's later on, she's looking at these, uh, these hippies who've taken over her parents' barn. And her first, her first thought is that they're trying to like take over what her parents had created, that they're trying to uh, erase it. But then she says, she's looking at this rainbow that they painted on the barn and it really irritates her. Right. Um, and she says, it seems a mockery. I even disliked the sight of these people when they came to town, the men with their hair and ponytails and with holes in their overalls that I believed were cut on purpose and the women with long hair and no makeup and their meek superior expressions. What do you know about life? I felt like asking them. What makes mm. you think you can come here and mock my father and mother and their life and their poverty? But when I thought of the rainbow and those letters, I knew there, there's letters painted on the barn. I knew they weren't trying to mock or imitate my parents' life. They had displaced that life, hardly knowing it existed. They had set up in its place these beliefs and customs of their own, which I hoped would fail them. Yeah, yeah. It's... That another thing that, and I don't remember where it was in the story exactly, but I remember, so she, she mentions at some point, maybe before that, that she has broken the cycle uh, by having two sons. And so there's this other element of it that's, yes. that's both internalized and kind of externalized. And this is why I think, you know, euphemism is like a really great way of Although men are secondary characters in this, that it's also a weirdly, I don't know, uh, anti-feminist story. It's, it's both feministic in its construction in the sense that it 
centralizes female characters, but anti-feminist in the sense that her mother is this, it becomes, you know, she cannot say the truth, which is that her mother basically fucked everybody over in the family <laughs> with, with her bitter vendetta against her father and could never let that go. So much so that she didn't want to have daughters. It's the opposite of that, right? Shouldn't it be the opposite of that? That like the, the, the breaking of the cycle is that she recognizes the cycle and properly instructs her children on how not to become trapped in this system of deliberately offloading your psychological trauma on others, or I don't know. I mean, I, I in, in that, that room, the, the, the commune, I mean, it, because she mentions too, uh, you know, she talks about how actually everybody was kind of like, they made the, the farm work, like were, they, they weren't just like lazy, they were doing things correctly for the most part. You look at the, this painting and you, you think to yourself, wow, oh, this is a cool place to be. <laughs> you know, free love probably before its time in the 60s and 70s, but they made the farm and then they sold the farm to somebody else who, who a couple of years later sold it for $50,000 rather than $5,000. Mm -hmm. And a $5,000 farm doesn't go to being a $50,000 farm in, in five years or even 10 years. That's, that's a big, that's a big jump. So it's the emotion, the, the centrality of of that wanting others to fail um, feels really important to me. Yes, and I, and I think she assumes a certain freshness in these people that have arrived to start the commune. That seems also just incredibly realistic uh, mm. for her narrative sort of train of thought. You know, the people around, of course, some of their farms look worse. They're more beaten down. These people have been trying to live this hard scrabble farming life for generations. And so these young people, seem fresh to her you know like of course they could maybe tackle this um new project maybe. but then of course that assumes that people who leave everything behind to go live on communes have had you know easy lives it's very possible that they have their own things that they are carrying and that she doesn't want to see and she she feels sort of glad when some of the women you know cut their hair get jobs in town start wearing makeup so you're right there is this little anti-feminist bent to it that I think is is the, the narrative voice here um, where this narrator of fame she wants conformity um, and what you were saying about boys you know they're so they're kind of peripheral but yet they can break the cycle mm. you know it reminds me of the difference between when I was uh, when I first had my first daughter uh, and then when I had my son and I remember you know when I people would say oh is that a girl or boy when he was tiny and I say oh it's a boy mm. And, you know, they'd say, oh, well, you know, he's going to love his mama. You're going to, you know, he's going to have it so easy. And then with my girls, they'd always be like, you're in for a challenge. You know, like, they're really, huh. you know, this like assumed complexity of women, which I think in some ways can be true, but also just seems like such an easy fallback. And I'll just, she says here, um, I think this is what you're referring to about the boys stopping the cycle. She says, uh, my brothers weren't bothered by any of this. I don't think so. They seem to me like cheerful savages running around free, not having to learn much. And when I just had the two boys myself, no daughters, I felt as if something could stop now. The stories and griefs, the old puzzles you can't resist or solve. And that's why I think, you know, I, not being an expert on feminism by any means, be, being more, try, attempting to be more closely attuned to it, you know, what's one of the things that, that really jumped, the, the reason the secondary nature of men in the book, not all of whom even have names, many of whom don't have names like her brothers, um, is, is that this is the centrality of this, is that it's, it's a story about a woman navigating her relationship with her mother and her grandmother. 
and that's it. Like there, there are other things around that. There are things that play into that, but that's really what this is about on a certain level. That's cool. It's, it's, it's cool to be able to read that. A lot of the books that I read growing up were, it was the opposite. It was a book about men and women were in the book and they were secondary characters or they sort of, their, their identity played into what the, the, the male character was thinking about or what they represented. But this is not, this is, this is a great example of the opposite of that. And ultimately it doesn't matter if the, the, the female character is feminist or anti-feminist, the, the thing that's really important is that she's central. Um, so that's, I was, re I really appreciated your, uh, turning me onto this for that reason. Um, and for the reason that it's extremely well-written. Yeah. Well, I'm really glad you enjoyed it. And, uh, I am certainly going to polish off the rest of uh, the collection now because I'm hooked again. And I, I just remembered what it is about her, her voice and the way she can, uh, construct a story that I just, it, it's awe-inspiring really because it feels so natural almost chatty at points like here's a memory mm. here's another memory and then when you really sort of break down like you were saying the tense shifts and the way that information is presented um like her decision to have uh, the narrator divulge that the destruction of the money before the big moment where it's divulged in the car i wouldn't have done that as a writer i would have thought it has to be divulged in scene in the car you know, that we learned that this money was burned, but she doesn't. She has the narrator mention it casually first, and you're thinking, what? And then she builds into the scene. So it was just a complete pleasure to get to read the story again, and I was really glad that you uh, asked me to choose one. Me too. I, you know, and I, I'm going to, I want to reread that one. You, you read this, and I just want to reread it because this is, I, I think this is where the cycle actually gets broken, if the cycle okay. gets broken, and it's not the having of sons. It's, it's that part at the end, it's the third to last paragraph where she says, how hard it is for me to believe that I made that up. It seems so much the truth. It is the truth. It's what I believe about them. I haven't stopped believing it, but I have stopped telling that story. Yeah. Because we, we have what we have inside of us. You know, our stories are, but the cycle is when you pass that story along to somebody else as her mother did to her. Right. So this is a really yeah. great story. I mean, this is like, this is like Greek <laughs> level great story in, in that it, it gives you a cycle and it, and, it, and it shows what the problems of being in a cycle are. And then it also shows you how to get out of it. It's a moral story. It's a deeply moral story. It is, it, it is, uh, yeah, and I just, now, I'm sorry, I got distracted by reading the last couple paragraphs again. <laughs> I love them so much. Um, uh, I just love the story so much. And I hope, uh, I mean, even though we can talk about it, I hope people will pick it up and read it for themselves because there's only so much we can say. But Well, I think that's a great place to stop uh, this particular episode. It's not going to be a long one. It's going to be pretty short, which I'm sure many listeners will appreciate. And the story is... The Progress of Love. The collection is The Progress of Love. The author is Alice Monroe. And as soon as I can track down a copy of it, because it's, uh, I, I think it's still in print, but it's somewhat, it's not, it's not, you know, this, this came out, I think, 15 or 20 years ago, or maybe a little bit more. It's, it, it's up there with, uh, with Raymond Carver or Dennis Johnson, as far as I can tell. So I'm looking forward to the read. Thanks so much for, for hanging out with me on a Sunday. Thanks, Adrian. It was a lot of fun.